0: haven't really spoken about this much, but I did separate from my first husband in 2007, and we eventually divorced in 2009. And the whole process was relatively amicable, and we managed to do a pretty decent job at co-parenting. And from the outside looking in, people thought that we did a great job, and the way that we communicated and still went to family parties together and all of that stuff. That all was good and positive, but divorce is never easy, and especially on kids. I just want to call that out, but I know some women opt to stay in their marriages until the kids are out of the house, and I totally respect that. As we hit midlife, though, and we decide it's time for a change because there's no connection in our marriage or the person we're married to is wanting to make their exit, there are many things to consider. But dealing with the emotions of leaving a long union can be heartbreaking or it can be liberating. At the end of the day, it's important to have your legal ducks in a row to ensure that you are protected financially and emotionally with the best outcome possible. On today's show, I speak to an attorney to get his perspective on divorce and how he approaches things a little differently. Health, wellness, career, relationships, and everything in between. We're removing the taboo from what really matters in midlife. I'm your host Michelle Folan, and this is Asking for a Friend. Welcome to the show, everyone. Our guest today is a California and Arizona-based attorney who practices family law. Joseph Wilmore specializes in all aspects of divorce, child custody, child support and domestic violence, with what I would say is a refreshing perspective. He believes that staying together is worth the effort in many cases, and that justice is not just about laws, but about people and humanity. He wants to help clients find a way forward without assigning blame. Welcome to Asking for a Friend, Joseph Wilmore.
1: Michelle, thank you for having me. Funny thing, Michelle, I've actually never met a Michelle that I don't like, and Michelle is my sister's <laughs> name, too. So <laughs>
0: Does she spell with one L or two?
1: <laughs> two. Oh,
0: yeah, okay.
1: I had to be careful when we were typing emails to make sure that I got it right.
0: <laughs> well, it's really great to have you here, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is because you seem to have a real people-focused approach to the practice of domestic law. I'm curious if that was always your intention or if that developed over time.
1: Funny thing is that if you were to ask me in law school, I don't think anybody dreams of being a divorce or family law attorney. Nobody goes to law school saying that's what I want to be. I think you fall into it, and in my case, I fell into it, learned that I loved it, and learned that I was good at it. And I think one of the main reasons for that is To be good at it, you need to understand that it's only maybe 30% actually based on the law, and the other 70% of it is roughly psychology, learning how to present a situation, learning how to persuade. Ultimately, family courts, no matter where you're located, is a court of equity, which means we should do the right thing and the fair thing under these circumstances. And that is so heavily dependent on how you present the case, how likable the client is. Judges are ordinary people too. (laughs) And they're not always going to agree with you. They're not even always going to interpret the laws correctly as well. So there's all these factors at play here in family law. And ultimately, if you can get somebody to see the light, gets people to be reasonable, get people to learn which battles to pick and where to focus their energies, you can really get them out of a bad situation and kind of focus on the rest of their life, which is where their focus and energy should be to get themselves out of this situation.
0: Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of nuances and a lot of juggling you have to do on your end to try to get the best result. I do want to back up because I'm curious about where you're from and also where you went to school, because I think I read that you also studied abroad.
1: I did. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, got my undergrad at Arizona State, moved to San Diego for law school. San Diego is just such a terrible place. I stayed here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's gorgeous. That's
1: where I developed my practice. Actually, June will mark my 11-year anniversary as an attorney, 10 of those years exclusively practicing family law, and also a certified family law specialist by the State Bar of California's Board of Legal Specialization, and with regard to my study abroad endeavors, I did study abroad both in law school. This is when I thought my focus was going to be a little bit more international law-based. And I did a study abroad program in Nice, France, also a very beautiful place, (laughs) and a summer in China.
0: How was that?
1: Very different cultures. (laughs) I mean, in China, obviously, you see a true communist society and how their laws work there, which is just such a change from Western culture, Western society. Of course, the summer I spent in France was prior to that. So Western European laws, of course, are, you know, American law is very closely based on that. So it was very similar.
0: Right. That's neat. You're dual licensed then in Arizona and California?
1: Yes. So I'm also licensed in Arizona. I can't say that I really do much work-related activity there. My practice is throughout Southern California, of course, primarily here in San Diego County, but also in Orange County, Los Angeles County, and Riverside County.
0: Okay, you're busy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am busy.
0: That's a large geography to cover.
1: It's a large area, yes. I will say the post-pandemic world where things are a lot easier at being virtual certainly makes it easier as well to where... There's a lot of hearings that we're able to do virtually these days as well.
0: All right. Well, that's nice. I do have a question for you. If you are meeting with a client and you feel in your gut that there's actually hope for the marriage based on those conversations, how do you engage in that conversation? How do you broach that?
1: The most important things when speaking to somebody on this is to make sure that they understand that they shouldn't file for divorce unless you know you're really at that point of no return, that you have explored every avenue possible, whether that be through therapy, religion, whatever it may be. You really are certain that there's no way to repair the marriage. I can tell you that many divorces we have filed as well, people have reconciled after the fact as well. There's actually a case recently that comes to mind, which we did a dismissal on a week or two ago, I believe it was. The parties had actually negotiated. We negotiated all of the terms of their divorce. We entered a marital settlement agreement. They both signed it. We submitted it to the courts. We had the party's judgment on the in chambers of this judge, ready to be signed off on. Clients wanted to reconcile, so we had to go, it's called ex-party, file an emergency hearing in order to get the judge to return the judgment to us and dismiss their divorce. Wow. I think there was, in this situation, a medical emergency with one of the spouses that actually caused them to realize, we, well, you know what? Maybe we should work this out.
0: (laughs) Wow. So how often does this happen?
1: I mean, it's not extremely common. I would say we get at least one or two of those a year where the clients do decide to reconcile or they've gone through divorce litigation for a period of time and realize, okay, this isn't what we did, or they somehow fall in love with each other again through the process. Actually, this reminds me of another case This is probably about eight or nine years ago where we're at a settlement in California, we call the mandatory settlement conferences. So before the court will set trial on any case, they always force you to attend a settlement conference. And here we are at the settlement conference and the husband and wife just start making out (laughs) and they realize that they didn't want to do this anymore. And we dismissed that (laughs) case as well. Nothing surprises us in this business anymore.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) This is a little difficult to ask, but are there circumstances where you feel that divorce is always the best option? Like when you go, oh, yeah, this needs to just.
1: I believe in situations where there is extreme emotional abuse, physical violence things of that nature, they're generally at a point where things cannot be repaired. They're certainly the most sensitive subjects that we deal with in divorce because any time domestic violence, restraining orders, and so forth come up, things are very complicated. But I do believe when there are extreme levels of domestic violence in a case, you generally beyond any chance of fixing what was once there.
0: Yeah, I would think if someone feels in danger or the children are in danger, anything along those lines, it would seem that you really have to look at the bigger picture on that one. A lot of women in this age group, our listeners are typically 50 plus. Many of them have probably stuck with their marriage because they wanted to wait until the kids were out of the house and now they're empty nesters and they're thinking, what's next? Do you have those clients where it's a midlife woman who is saying, I'm not fulfilled any longer, my aging parents are gone, my husband and I have no connection. In those cases, how do you get them to move on from that point?
1: I would say a lot of times in those situations, I can think of several recent examples of this as well, is usually they're already ready to take that step. I would say the biggest fear for, say, a woman in her mid-50s who comes to me, there may be a fear of, of course, what is the next step? I've had my spouse around for the past 25 years. I'm scared to try dating again. It's a scary world having to meet new people. But I would say the most common fear I get among this demographic would be financially. Yeah. It's very common, of course, to where a female, a wife, may have been the breadwinner of the marriage, or they may have been a stay-at-home mom. That fear can either be rooted by, oh, I've been the breadwinner, this man's going to take half of all I have and I'm going to be on the hook for spousal support for a very long time. Or it could be a stay-at-home mom who is scared for how she'll make ends meet uh, after the divorce as well, or what she's even entitled to. Because in those situations, I would say oftentimes a woman is fearful and and her husband may have put improper ideas in her head as well, such as, you know, I'm not going to give you a penny, you're not going to have anything. And that's, of course, not how the law works as well. So in those situations, it's also a matter of really educating the potential client as far as, okay, well, here's what the law says. Here's what you would be entitled to. Just explain the options that they have as far as getting them out of their situation. Of course, understanding, okay, well, what are your objectives for the future as well? And how can we make this make sense and give you a plan forward.
0: This topic came up recently with a friend of mine, and I know all states are different. But can you explain the difference between community property and where it's somebody gets to keep a certain amount because of certain circumstances?
1: Where it's separate property. Okay.
0: I don't know what the terms are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'll define this very clearly is that I think the general assumption is that community property is scarier. But it's actually extremely predictable as far as what property rights are. A lot of times people will think, okay, well, I get married to a person now, half of everything I have ever had is theirs. And that is false. So everything you have prior to marrying somebody stays your separate property. It's the property that you acquired during your marriage that your spouse now has this one-half divided interest in. Say You owned a condo before you got married, then you got married, you and your spouse bought a house, you had the condo as your rental property, you got rental income from that. Everything with regard to that condo, the rental income, everything from it stays your separate property. The new house you bought with your spouse, that is a community property, so that would be, both of you guys are entitled to half of the equity in that.
0: But if there were any gains in property value on the condo.
1: Stays your separate property.
0: uh, That still stays separate.
1: If you have a spouse that really wants to argue the nitty gritties of that, they can, (laughs) and this happens, depending on the level of contention in the case. There are cases where people try to argue, well, principal pay down of separate property, because if you are spending what would be considered community monies, here's kind of the arguing points there. If, let's say that was the wife's condo premarital. She had a job, so she was earning income. The arguing point is, well, what money was paying down the mortgage? Exactly.
0: Exactly.
1: Of that condo, is that her income? Say she had a tenant in there. She's gonna argue, well, no, the rental income I had paid down the mortgage, so it was never community funds. Now, the husband in that situation could argue, well, no, I think it was her wages that was paying that down. Then you could run into a tracing issue. I will say in that situation, if it were to get before a judge, the most likely scenario would be that we're going to say that the rental income was paying down the mortgage on it.
0: How often do you have to hire a forensic accountant? I almost couldn't say that.
1: <laughs> How much do they hate each other?
0: Oh.
1: is <laughs> really the question. Yeah. In those situations, I would say forensic accountants come in when we have what are called breach of fiduciary duty claims, typically. So are we saying that one person mismanaged money or took money that the other person was entitled to? In those cases, we can hire a forensic to trace to where the paper trail went, essentially. So if we're saying, well, there was this money here, and now there seems to be $200,000 missing, where did it go? That could require a forensic. I would say the most common reason for us to hire a forensic is if there was a business during the marriage and whether that was mm-hmm. created before marriage or during the marriage, most typical thing is we'll run out forensic for business value and income from that business available for paying spousal support.
0: How often do people hide money? Because you hear that.
1: Here's what I would say is money hiding the way I see it most often is when there's an affair, they'll be hiding money to fund perhaps an affair. One of the more egregious situations, I would say, was uh, when we had discovered on this one case that the husband literally had an entire other family, another house, another life in addition to his life with my client. That was a huge, of course, breach of fiduciary duty because there was a huge amount of money going out that he, essentially, they had a business and some of the money that should have gone into it went into another account, which was funding this whole other family, this whole other life. So that was one of our bigger (laughs) tracing mechanisms. Generally speaking, it's not that large. I would say for our more common cases, which I would say are two spouses that both have W-2 filing jobs, those situations, it's pretty hard to misappropriate or hide money. Again, your most common ones is going to be if there's a business involved.
0: It just floors me. First of all, the expense of supporting two families That would be really difficult to do today (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the average person.
1: Absolutely.
0: And then the stress of that. I mean, is that worth it? I have a hard time juggling my job and a husband and two dogs.
1: (laughs) And I kind of think the same thing, too, where I'm thinking, how did this guy manage that? I mean, the guy... He definitely aged himself a lot in this divorce, I will say, because this was probably a three-year divorce, start to finish. Uh, and boy, was he tired by the end of that.
0: I bet. I bet you were, too. <laughs> I do want to ask about prenuptial agreements and post-nuptial agreements because I didn't know there was such thing as a post-nuptial agreement again till I started reading more about you and following you on Instagram back to this age group of women we're typically around 50 plus although I do have younger listeners and some of them have been working or may have a nice little nest egg what are your thoughts about prenups
1: I think, quite frankly, everybody should have a prenup, and I don't say that just because I am an attorney, but I think everybody deserves, of course, and should have the protections of a prenup because there is a lot of risk, and I know there is generally the argument of you are setting your marriage up for failure by signing that, but I kind of look at it a little bit differently, that you're holding both yourself and the other person accountable, to where you are negotiating the own terms of your relationship and the terms in the event it were to fail, rather than letting the state (laughs) and the courts decide that for you. Even when it comes to negotiating a prenup, and this will oftentimes occur when I'm, say, representing the higher earner in a prenup negotiation, I will always tell them, To do a spousal support buyout, meaning even if this fails, there's this tremendous disparity of wealth between you and your spouse, buy them out. And they'll say, well, why wouldn't we just set it at zero and tell them to go pound sand? (laughs) Right. And the reason, actually, if you want the prenup enforced as well, you should kind of have certain terms that appear equitable as well. Then you run into issues of was this an unconscionable agreement when they signed it. So in that situation, it absolutely would help the higher earner for an enforceability standpoint and a conscionability standpoint for there to be a spousal support buyout. Because there are, you can always argue, and it is oftentimes argued in a divorce when there is a prenup, well, is this agreement even valid or not? And everything you can do to equalize certain things, and that primarily includes wealth disparity and the a person's ability to pick up the pieces, so to speak, upon a marriage falling apart, how will that still look fair in the end while the party still negotiated their the terms of it, and that's one of the best ways of doing that.
0: Prenups don't always hold up.
1: Prenups do not always hold up.
0: Uh, I would say
1: any state, every state, I should say, rather, does have very strict rules on this. This makes me think of early into my career as well. I had a client come to me, and this woman, who was a very sophisticated woman, she was a doctor she had her mother go to a law library and copy and paste together her prenup (laughs) for her. (laughs) And of course, she comes to me with that, and I look at it, and I was like, there is a million reasons why this agreement is deficient. And quite frankly, a lot of it is technicalities, too, to where, okay, we need to follow certain rules. It's even a matter of how long did a person have to review this before they even signed it. So if you don't meet all these simple rules and acknowledgements, that prenup's going to be invalidated. Okay. Not every prenup holds up. There's definitely strict rules you want, especially when you're negotiating uh, extreme terms in it. That's our relinquishment of potential property rights. You'll want both sides represented by attorneys as well. That'll also help for an enforceability standpoint. And again, in situations like what I just said, if there's an extreme difference in wealth, you still want to at least buy them out. That'll also help from an enforcement standpoint.
0: All right. When would people do a post a post agreement?
1: Technically, in California and in most states, they will allow spouses to contract their marital rights at any time, hmm. meaning if they are married for a period of time, and then they decide, you know what, let's change some of the rules here, <laughs> for whatever reason that may be. I will say the most common reason somebody comes to me requesting a post is if there was infidelity and they are trying to work through it. Okay. I would say that's the number one reason I see clients with regard to postnups. And generally speaking, those are more of accountability agreements in those situations. I would say in those situations as well, a post will help them if reconciliation ultimately fails and they do have to divorce because it will streamline the process if they do have that agreement to fall back on.
0: How about debt? How is debt handled through a divorce?
1: I'm glad you mentioned that as well because everybody always likes to talk about the money (laughs) when it comes to relationships (laughs) and divorce. Everybody always forgets talking about debt, and debt is treated the exact same way as money. We look at debt when it was acquired, and if it was acquired during the marriage, it doesn't matter. Say you, and this is also a good reason for a prenup as well, if you Marry somebody who has a bit of a spending problem, and they love to rack up credit card debt. Even if that credit card debt is only in their name, if it was acquired during the marriage, family court's going to deem that a marital debt. Ugh! This is community property state deem the other spouse half responsible for that as well.
0: Oh, dear Lord.
1: Isn't that a terrible outcome? That is terrible.
0: (laughs) I'm not a huge shopper. I'm not speaking of myself, but we know plenty of people that hide stuff in their trunk.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are those spouses that, and you hear it all the time, where, oh, well, I had to sneak these items into the house so my husband or my wife wouldn't see that.
0: Happens all the time. I just thought of a really good question. I was speaking to someone recently whose mother-in-law had a live-in boyfriend and she was well-to-do she had a very very nice nest egg and this guy that was living with her did not and she decided to kick him out right before he would be considered common law (laughs) okay common law type guidelines are they the exact same as if you were had a ring on your finger and you were married
1: This completely depends on where a person lives as well. Okay. In states such as here in California, there's actually no such thing as common law marriage, meaning people can live together for 20 years in what would appear to be a marital-like relationship. There's no common law marriage. There's no marital rights earned. However, Uh. in California we have what is called the Marvin case. So we call this a Marvin claim. And it has to be very, very extreme. The example in this situation was a case, I want to say this goes back to the late 1970s. So late 1970s, early 1980s, I believe it was. And this was a case out of L.A. County. It was a, a woman who was an actress. She sacrificed her career to be a stay-at-home wife. She and her, we'll call them a (laughs) quasi-husband, held themselves (laughs) out to the general public as husband and wife. Everybody thought they were married, but they were not married. I believe this was 16, 17, 18-ish years they were living together as what appeared to be husband and wife. Then the I keep calling him husband, but the the pretend husband here said, no more, you are out, get out of my house, none of this is yours. So, of course, she tried to file a civil claim against him, and that's when they develop what's called a Marvin claim. So essentially, they did outline, okay, well, given the level of sacrifice that this woman had given over a course of nearly 20 years in this situation, given that she sacrificed her career, she raised, I believe there were two or three children in this situation as well and had no property, no means of survival, is this woman now society's burden to be on the welfare system, or should she have uh, some claims? So in this one, instead of calling it alimony, we called it palimony. She did have claims to what would equate to spousal support, and certain property rights, not the same as in a marriage, but some property rights to uh, the house and other items as well. Okay. So still not an exact result like marriage or a divorce, I should say, but still acquiring some rights. Again, there have to be, at least in California, very significant circumstances for that to be appropriate.
0: All right. It's state by state. I get that.
1: Yeah, state by state.
0: I had to ask that one because that just popped in my head. I do want to talk a little bit about infidelity because I'd just love to get your perspective on this. How often are couples able to overcome infidelity?
1: I would actually say that the biggest reason for divorce among my cases, I would probably say it's 60% of them, is actually money Mm. and not infidelity-based. I will say that, again, I would say it's certainly situational. There are And this is just, again, because nothing surprises me in this business anymore. The amounts, and it is 2023, (laughs) the amount of throuples or people who are married that have a third participant in it is surprisingly more common. So I feel that whether good or bad or just maybe how society has developed, it seems almost like infidelity is taken maybe less is a critical failure for a marriage where maybe in the past it was, well, if he cheated, I'm done, there's no going back. And maybe there is a bit of a change in society today where they don't look at infidelity with that same degree of perhaps fatal flaw or that there is still a chance or, well, maybe they can work through it for everybody's own situation. Do I think that I would be able to overcome it personally? Probably not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I can tell you that I see a lot of situations out there where it doesn't seem to matter to some people as well. All right. I think it's truly circumstantial, and I think it's really a matter of a person being in touch with themselves and their own emotions and knowing, well, if if my trust was breached in this way, would I be able to overcome that? I can say for me, probably not. So for me, I would probably say, well, if I was cheated on, you know, I think I'm done. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of other people out there that, (laughs) that say something much different where they're like, well, was it that bad? Eh."
0: (laughs) I know. So word to any woman in Joseph's life, Don't fool around.
1: (laughs) I think it will certainly save somebody a lot of problems. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Wise words. I do want to get your perspective on something because after you've worked with a client for sometimes more than a year or two until everything is said and done, you get to know these people pretty well. And you have become a confidant and in some cases probably… A friend. Yeah. I was curious how you handle those post divorce emotions and how you try to help people start over or move to the next. Phase of things.
1: Michelle, so it's interesting because somebody, that was recent, I think it was an Uber driver uh, on my way to court one day. Like, how do you not become emotionally invested in your cases and get really, really angry <laughs> You know, with the situations? Yeah. Well, number one, I care tremendously for my clients and making their situation better. But I believe, and actually, I'd say it's very clearly evident, when attorneys become emotionally consumed and invested in a case, that's actually when the attorney starts screwing the case up. Because as the (laughs) attorney, we need to still be able to see clearly through the situation. Because ultimately, the divorce is a business decision, really, where we're looking at hard numbers. We're looking at laws and likely legal outcomes. And no matter how angry you are at your spouse, that's not going to change numbers and that's not going to change the laws as well. When you get yourself consumed in that, you lose clarity and and ultimately you, you screw it all up. <laughs> <laughs> And those are kind of when I call them my come to Jesus talks with my clients is that when I have a client who's not seeing clearly, who's not seeing the light, and it's really a matter of saying, okay, well, I get all of that, but you really need to focus on the big picture. You know, you, you might get temporary pleasure by making your spouse miserable, by doing X, Y, and Z, but you're going to hurt yourself and take yourself down in the process. But if you focus on the end result, that'll get yourself in the best financial position. That'll get you away from this person who's making you very miserable. And ultimately, you'll be several steps ahead toward a better life. If I were to summarize it relatively easily, that's what I would say. Well, let's look at the business aspect of this. Let's look at the hard numbers and let's look at what the likely legal outcome is going to be.
0: Focus on the big picture is what you're saying.
1: Focus on the big picture. Focus on getting yourself out of that situation.
0: Okay. I did a show recently on intimacy and building stronger communication in marriage. So after being in your field of work, what advice do you have for couples?
1: I can say... I think people let things build up, rather than saying what something makes them feel as they feel it. Things will build up for a period of time, and then somebody will just lash out on their spouse, rather than had they had all these small discussions over whether they're small disputes or just something their spouse did that drives them crazy. If you communicate these things as they happen, you you convey your feelings and. I think also part of that is not diminishing your spouse when they tell you how they feel as well. Because I don't even look at that as placing blame on anybody. It's just, well, when you do this, it makes me feel this. Now, are we saying that you're wrong for doing that or I'm wrong for feeling a certain way when you do that? No, but it's how I react. When you do that, take it for what it's worth, so to speak. You know that's how it makes me feel. And if you know that that doesn't make me feel good, are you going to change your behavior? Is it that big of a deal type thing? Again, just understanding your spouse, understanding feelings, not always trying to win a situation. You think about it. If you're married to somebody, you're supposed to be on the same team. You're supposed to be partners. You shouldn't be trying to win against your spouse or one-up them because ultimately their happiness should be your happiness. And you'd hope that your happiness is their happiness (laughs) as well. I think it's really a matter of seeing it that way as well.
0: So focus on the big picture is what you're saying. And I think that's really good advice. I mean, we all do it. We all let things...
1: I've never done that before.
0: Oh, no, never, (laughs) never. (laughs) Never. But, you know, we all do that. We all... Yeah, let things kind of fester, and then it comes to a head. And if we would have the conversation as it's happening, explain. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I've learned so much doing this podcast. It's been great. We're going to wrap things up, but I want to first ask you: Where can listeners find you if they want to follow you?
1: I'm on Instagram. It's my first name, Joseph Dot Wilmore. I'm on TikTok as well. That's Joseph underscore Wilmore on there. And my website is wilmorelawfirm.com.
0: All right. I'll have to check you out on TikTok. I didn't know you were on there too.
1: I think it's mostly the same stuff as on Instagram, but. Okay. Welcome to. <laughs>
0: well, and Joseph, if it means anything to you, I don't think you're a homewrecker and a slime ball. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I appreciate that, Michelle.
0: Oh, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: All right. I had fun. Thank you, Michelle.
0: Follow Asking for a Friend on social media outlets and provide a review and share this show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and sharing help us grow.